Cool. Open up your Bibles. Yeah, amen. Prayer. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. As we continue in our study, Mark chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 21. And uh, this message is going to be a two-parter, this week and next week. This week, we're going to be talking about Jesus and demons. Next week, we'll be talking about you and demons. But anytime we endeavor to talk about you and demons or us and demons or Christians and demons, we want to be very careful to talk about Jesus and demons first. Amen? So this week, we lay the foundation. We will have a Bible study. I I hope you're ready. I hope you're prepared. We'll be here for some time, but it's going to be wonderful. And then next week, you and demons, and that'll be wonderful as well. Starting in verse 21, it says, and they, meaning Jesus and those two pairs of brothers he just picked up, Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they went into Capernaum, Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, an unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district. What an account we have this morning. One thing that will become very clear as we study the book of Mark and as you study the Gospels and as you study the entirety of the New Testament is the reality of Satan and his demons. We started off by Jesus and the boys going into Capernaum. Capernaum, for your viewing pleasure, is located, uh, I have a little laser light here, isn't this fun? right there on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Here's Jerusalem down here, so you can get yourself oriented. Here's the Jordan River. There's the Sea of Galilee. On the northwest side is where Capernaum is located. And today, the ruins are there. I've been there a couple times. You can go to the ruins. Go to the next slide. And uh, again, this is the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, viewed from the very mount where Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. So, Uh, Capernaum would be in this region here. And the ruins are pictured right here. Here are some of the ruins of the ancient city of Capernaum where Peter made his home, Andrew made his home, where a lot of stuff went down biblically that we'll speak of. We have another picture here. Um, These are a bunch of foundations of homes and partial walls that have since been burnt from the first century. They believe, archaeologists believe, that they have found the home of Peter in Capernaum. You can go there and it says this was Peter's house. I don't know if it was or not, but that's fun. In the background is a fourth century synagogue. 
underneath that floor that you see right there of the fourth century synagogue, they discovered in 1981 another floor. And that floor was the very floor of the synagogue that existed in Capernaum in the first century. That is, that synagogue that you're viewing stands in the very place where Jesus taught here in Mark chapter one, where Jesus cast out the demon. I've been there, I've seen it myself. This synagogue underneath that one from the fourth century is the very synagogue where Jesus gave that famous sermon that he was the bread of life. One more picture of the synagogue. There it is. Again, those are the ruins from the fourth century. Underneath is the very synagogue mentioned here in verse 21. So Jesus and the boys go into the synagogue and Jesus begins to teach. You might want to know that a synagogue in the first century was primarily a house of instruction. It is where the Jews gathered on the Sabbath to hear from the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament, to have the teachers of the day instruct them. It was not primarily a house of worship as we may consider it. It was more directed at religious instruction. And Jesus taught in this very synagogue on several occasions here in Mark chapter 1, in John chapter 6, and in Luke chapter 4. Jesus was continually teaching in this very synagogue because Capernaum had become his home. You say, wait a minute, Bible teacher. Nazareth was his home. You got it wrong. And before you write me letters, read chapter 2, verse 1, where it says clearly Jesus came into Capernaum and that was his home. Nazareth is where he grew up. But when he began his ministry, he set up his headquarters in the home of Andrew, in the home of Peter, in the same region where James and John probably lived, there in Capernaum. Now, why did Jesus make a switch from Nazareth to Capernaum at the beginning of his ministry? When you go to Capernaum today, you'll see a marker placed. And the marker says, Via Maris. That is, that is the very region where the Via Maris, which was a major highway of trade and travel in the ancient world, running from north to south, from the area of Babylon all the way down to Egypt, was located. And anything that went on as far as international trade throughout the Middle East had to go down the Via Maris, a very strategic, a very important road, and it ran right past Capernaum. And so Capernaum, being called a city, had a relatively high population. There was a lot of people there. There was a lot of stuff going on. It wasn't somewhere uh, giant. It wasn't a huge destination. It wasn't like a Los Angeles or a San Francisco. It was more like a Santa Barbara Carpinteria type place. It was on the 101, so to speak. It was on the Via Maris, which means way of the sea, just like the 101. And so Jesus, his heart being for the people, having been in the region of Capernaum and seen the people that they were uh, possessed by demons, that they were epileptics and paralytics and uh, that they were uh, having all sorts of diseases and pains, that they were like sheep without a shepherd. It was in this very region where he decided to set up his ministry, having a heart for the people. He went to the people. Now, a lot of miracles took place in Capernaum. The centurion's servant, he came to Jesus and said, my, centur- uh, my servant is laying there paralyzed. And in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus healed him in Capernaum. Peter's mother-in-law was sick later on in Mark chapter 1. Again, in Capernaum, Jesus healed her. 
This in Capernaum is a place where the story took place, where Jesus was in the house and the crowd was tremendous and four guys brought this paralytic. You remember that? And they couldn't get in because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof and they removed the roof of the house and they lowered the guy down. And not only did Jesus heal him, but he declared your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders began to say, he blasphemes, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What is easier to do, to say this man, take a pallet and walk or to forgive his sins? And so he said to the man, stand up and walk. And he healed him in the very presence that day. That too happened in Capernaum. And we learn in verse 34 of Mark chapter one that Jesus did all sorts of healings in Capernaum, cast out all sorts of demons and did all these miraculous things. And that was his very home. And yet we learn in the gospels that the majority of the people did not follow him. It's amazing to me. It's amazing that you could be right next to a powerful move of God and miss out on the whole thing. God is beginning to move in our community on our stretch of coastline here. Friends, our commission is to not let people miss out on the moving of God. Our burden given to us by God, our honor, our responsibility is that we would bring people to Jesus wherever he is. And he's moving in our community currently. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus pronounced doom upon Capernaum upon Chorazin, and upon Bethsaida. He said, if the miracles that were performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. And he said, woe unto you, Capernaum. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, they would have been repented. And he said there in Matthew chapter 11, Capernaum, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Sodom was a Gentile, horrible, wicked town. We get some words from the very name of the town. It was evil. And yet Capernaum, being a Hebrew town, and denying the presence of Jesus in their midst, Jesus said, it'll be worse for you in the judgment. May it never be for our community. May it never be for the area and the region in which we dwell. May we be like the disciples who after the resurrection want and let everybody know that he is risen. And so desiring that none should perish, the Lord manifests his heart for people by setting up his headquarters in Capernaum. He went there to proclaim the gospel and to reclaim the lives. To proclaim the gospel and to reclaim the lives. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Acts 17. It reads like this, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. There is that beautiful, wonderful word. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The word of God here says that God is overwilling to look a time of ignorance, but the time has come that all men everywhere should repent. Now, when Jesus came, that is what he preached. We saw that last week in our study of verse 15 or the week before that he came preaching the good news of the gospel that men should repent and believe in the gospel. No doubt, as this morning he begins to teach in the synagogue that this was the basis for his teaching the good news of the kingdom, that the kingdom was at hand, that the Messiah had come, 
that grace was now being extended, that men and women should believe in the gospel. And it says in verse 22, or verse 21, that as he began to teach this, I'm sorry, verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed. It's very good for us to look at the literal meaning of that word in the Greek. It means that they were astounded, struck out of their senses, overwhelmed. It's as if when Jesus began to teach in the synagogue that morning, every jaw hit the ground, you know what I'm saying? They couldn't stand to be in his prayer. It was, it was overwhelming. They were struck out of their senses. They were just going, oh, 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 as he began to teach. Can you imagine being given a Bible study by the word of God himself? Don't you wish you were one of those two guys on the road to Emmaus that day? when Jesus showed up after the resurrection, sneaky, sneaky like, and he said, gee whiz, guys, what are you doing? Oh, man, we're all bummed out. We thought this Jesus guy was the Messiah, and it's been four days, and he was crucified, and so we're leaving town. We've given up hope. And Jesus says, oh, let me explain to you the whole of the Old Testament as it pertains to the Messiah. And then their eyes were open to the reality of who he was. To be given a Bible study by the word of God himself, they were amazed, astounded, struck out of their senses, overwhelmed. And it says in verse 22, because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, as we study the gospel of Mark and the rest of the gospels, you will hear that word frequently, the scribes. You will see that Jesus clashes with the scribes, that the followers of Jesus clash with the scribes. You'll see that they play a big role in the life of Israel at that time. Who exactly were the scribes? Well, we'll explain. They were entrusted with the application and interpretation of the law, meaning the Old Testament, primarily the Pentateuch, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, and the oral tradition. It was their job to interpret it and to imply those two things, apply them to the people. Because by the time of Jesus, in the first century, it had become very complicated. There had been lots of scribes in the previous centuries, lots of rabbis who added burden to burden, commandment to commandment. There were the 613 commandments given to us by God in the Old Testament, and then they added upon those heap upon heap, multitude upon multitude. By the first century, it was very, very complicated. An intense study was required of the Old Testament and the oral tradition just to have a general idea of what was there. It was so complicated because it was the basis for social life and religious life during that time. The Jews had to know what the law and what the oral tradition said. And so the scribes would engage in a deep study that the average Hebrew of the day wouldn't. And having engaged in this deep study, the scribe now had a threefold job. Firstly, he had a job as a legislator. That is, he would determine what was valid law. Many rabbis came and said, thus and so, and this commandment in the Torah or in the Pentateuch means this and that. And another rabbi, Rabbi Halal, would come along and say, oh, I don't think so. I think it means this and that. And another rabbi would come along and say, oh, well, I've been listening to Rabbi Shammai, and I think it's this and that and the other. And another one would come along and say, no, we must interpret it thusly. And the people would go, somebody, please tell me what it means. And so they would go to the scribes. 
And it was their job to say, well, this is valid law, this is how this is interpreted, interpreted, and this is how we ought to live in light of that. Secondly, they had jobs judicially. They were members of the court of law, and they would pass sentence on people. During the first century and a couple centuries prior, they were members of the Sanhedrin. That is, that board of men made up by 70 elders in Israel who would pass judicial sentence in the land. The Sanhedrins had a role on that board. After 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin who met in the temple no longer met, and now they had uh, private courts of law where the Sanhedrin would rule. Uh, not the Sanhedrin, the scribes would rule. And people would come and say, listen, scribe, this guy did this and that and the other. And they would say, well, here's what that means. Here's the sentence for that. And the people would voluntarily acquiesce to the sentence handed down by the scribe. Now, being that they engaged in such intense study of the law and were so learned in the law and the oral tradition, they were also sought after teachers in the land of Israel. And so when you went to a synagogue on the Sabbath in the first century, the teacher that you would most often hear from would probably be a scribe. They were the ones who would most often stand up and give an exhortation, give a message, expound upon, teach and instruct in the word of God. So, Having this threefold role in the life of Israel, you can imagine, if you're a thinking person, that they had tremendous authority in the lives of the Israelites in the first century. I mean, look at all that they did. These scribes had tremendous authority, and yet we know from the words of Jesus that their authority had become one of such as lording it over the people. When they would address the people, they would call them men of the earth. They would stand up on the platform and say, men of the earth, meaning lowly ones. We might say dirtbags, you know, men of the earth, synonymous. Men of the earth, here's what the law says, here's what you ought to do. And so they were lording it over the people. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 to the scribes, woe to you because you're hypocrites who through your teaching shut off the kingdom of God from themselves and shut it off from men. They had done nothing but bring confusion to the word of God, did nothing but add burden upon the people of God, and now Jesus came denouncing them, and Jesus came pronouncing repentance, forgiveness, and freedom, which is exactly what the people needed, having been underneath the yoke of the scribes and the yoke of the law. And when Jesus came, Proclaiming repentance, forgiveness, and freedom. We are told here in verse 22, it was with authority, not as the scribes. They would stand up and quote so-and-so. Rabbi Shammai said this. Rabbi Hillel said this. So on and so forth. Jesus didn't quote anybody. That was a normal teaching of the day. You quoted, you quoted, you quoted, you quoted. Jesus quoted nobody. He wouldn't even say, thus saith the Lord, because he was the Lord. No reason for him to say, thus saith the Lord. Instead, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I, I am the great I am. I say unto you. No reason for him to quote. Other teachers explained the law. He was the lawgiver. Others drew from the well. He was the well. 
There was no need for him to argue truth. He affirmed the truth. He didn't need to seek the support of other teachers. He in himself was sufficient in his teaching. He not only spoke the truth, he was the truth. He not only expounded upon the word of God, he was the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when Jesus spoke, the people were astounded, struck out of their senses, overwhelmed. Now listen to me, people. When the word of God was spoken from the mouth of God, from the mouth of Jesus Christ, it elicited two responses. Or that is, responses in two places. In the human realm and in the spiritual realm. The humans who heard, they were amazed, they were astounded, they were overwhelmed, they were struck out of their senses. But in the spiritual realm, as the demons heard the word of God pronounced with authority, they were amazed, they were struck out of their senses, they were overwhelmed. Now, you need to know, as we begin to proclaim the word of God in our town this morning, it's being proclaimed here, it's being proclaimed at the Avocado Festival, it's being proclaimed up on First Baptist, it's being proclaimed over at Carpenter's Chapel, it's being proclaimed throughout the city, that there is always a response in the human realm and in the spiritual realm. Always when the word of God preached is preached, there are those two responses. So it will always be. And look at the response in the spiritual realm that happened when Jesus spoke on this morning in the synagogue. Verse 23. And just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Can you imagine you're being in church and the preacher is preaching and a demon through a man says this? And in verse 25, and Jesus rebuked him. That is the same word used when Jesus spoke and calmed the storm. Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And all the people were amazed that he had this new teaching and that he even commanded the unclean spirits and they obeyed him. Take note this morning, Christians, that Jesus had absolute authority over the demonic realm. There was no argument that took place. He didn't say, Shut up and come out of him. And the demon went, well, I don't know, Jesus. Who are you? It didn't happen that way. Be quiet and come out of him. Oh, I'm not sure. Make me. Be quiet and come out of him. Well, why should I? The demon didn't say anything. The demon came out of him. Jesus had and has absolute authority over the demonic realm. Now, here's why this becomes important. The demonic realm still exists today. Demons still mess with people, Christians and non-Christians alike, today. To deny that is to deny the very word of God. The word of God speaks of demons in times past, demons in the new covenant age, and demons in the millennial kingdom, and demons at the final judgment, and of course, demons prior to that in the tribulation period. The Bible is very clear that demons exist throughout history. But the Bible also declares that Jesus is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And yesterday he had authority over the demons, and today he has authority over the demons, and in the time to come, he will have absolute authority. The demon, when Jesus spoke, immediately knew who he was. And he immediately knew that Jesus had the power to destroy not just him, but all the demons. Did you hear what he said? There's only one demon in this man. He says, I, at the end of that verse, but at the beginning he said, whoa, Jesus, what do we have to do with you? Have you come to destroy us? Meaning, whoa, this is the Messiah. This dude can mess us all up. All the demons could get jacked up by this guy. Jesus, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the son of the most high God. Oh no, it's over for us. (laughs) That is the sense of what went on there. And so it is throughout the Gospels. We see in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, it says, And whenever unclean spirits beheld Jesus, they would fall down before him and cry out, You are the Son of God! Oh no! The demons would fall. It says it in Mark chapter 5, verse 7. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up, speaking of a a, a legion, the demon-possessed man, ran up and bowed down before him. Listen to me now. In Mark chapter 5, verse 7, it says that this man possessed by the demon's legion, for they were many, when they saw Jesus, they ran up and they bowed down before him. In the Greek, the word is proskuneo. It is the word in Greek for worship. In fact, the King James Version, God bless it, and the New King James Version both translate it worship. The demons came when they saw Jesus and they bowed down before him, made themselves prostrate. They got down on the ground and they said, oh no, Lord, have you come to destroy us? Jesus had absolute authority. Even the demons had to bow down at his feet. And they said, crying out with a loud voice, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I'm begging you, do not torment me. I love my Jesus. He is so awesome. The demons, why should we fear them when they saw the Lord? Do not torment me. It becomes very clear if you read your Bible that the demons are absolutely terrified at the presence of in the name and the power of Jesus. Terrified, not just submitted, terrified, struck with terror, they would fall before him. They'd say, don't destroy us if you come to torment us. It says in James chapter two, the demons know that God is one and they shudder. They shudder, they shake in fear. In Matthew eight twenty nine, two demon-possessed men came up and they said to Jesus, have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time, what does that mean? Have you come to torment us, the demon said to Jesus, before the time? God has revealed to the demons that there is a moment coming in history where they will be tormented horribly forever. Let's look now at the differing stages of demonic activity throughout the history of redemption. That's a big sentence, so I put it up there for you. The differing stages of demonic activity throughout the history of redemption. First, we're going to look at demonic activity in the Old Testament. 
And then we're going to see what it looked like during the ministry of Jesus, obviously. During the new covenant age, which, by the way, in case you didn't know, is from the beginning of the church until the tribulation period, preceded by the rapture of the church. During the millennial kingdom, which comes after the tribulation period, when Jesus has returned in bodily form, properly called the second coming of Christ Jesus, not to be confused with the rapture. And then at the final judgment. So we will look at the activity of demons during these five periods of history. First of all, demons in the Old Testament, as you read the Old Testament, I know you've read every single word of it, and you've taken note. It says a lot of times God is holy. It says a whole lot of stuff, but seldom is the word demon used in the Old Testament. It's very rare in the Old Testament. And so as you read it, you might begin to think, man, there wasn't that much demonic activity in the New Testament. It seems unique to the New Testament. That would be absolutely wrong. There was a tremendous amount of demonic activity in the Old Testament. Let me ask you, what was the repeated sin of Israel throughout the Old Testament? Idolatry. Over and over and over again, they're just like us. Don't be hard on Israel. They're just like you and I. Over and over again, they turn away from the Lord and they'd fall into idolatry. They would go after the false gods. Now, when we begin to realize that the so-called false gods of the Old Testament were actually demonic forces, then we understand that there was a tremendous amount of demonic activity in the Old Testament. In fact, demonic uh, activity or demons held sway over entire nations during that time. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, false gods are identified as demons. It says there, Moses writing, that they sacrificed to demons who were no gods at all. Again, in Psalm 106, the false gods are identified as demons. There, the psalmist speaking of um, the pagan nations around Israel and when Israel sinned and they would um, sacrifice their children to the false gods. It says in Psalm 106, verse 35, that they sacrifice their sons and daughters to demons. And in the New Testament, Paul writing to the church of Corinth in his first epistle, chapter 10, verse 20, says that pagan sacrifices are actually sacrifices offered to demons. You better think about that as you view other religions in the world who we would call false gods. The Bible says that it is demonic forces that are behind those false religions, behind those false gods. And so in the Old Testament, when those pagan nations and Israel in their sin would offer up worship to the false gods, they were really worshiping Satan and his demons. That is why God so severely judged the nation of Israel when they would fall into idolatry. It was not about some lame statue. They were following after demons. That is why, listen to me, God so severely judged some of those nations in the Old Testament. He would wipe them out. When we read the Old Testament, we say, oh my gosh, God totally wiped that whole nation out. The whole nation was demonized. And so it becomes obvious that when Israel was led by the Lord into this battle against these nations and to take the land of Canaan as God promised and they would come up against all these other armies, that even more so than the battle being physical, the battle was spiritual. 
In a very real sense, it was God's armies up against those demonic armies. And that is why the only way Israel ever won a single battle was when the Lord won. When the Lord went before them, when they walked out in their flesh, wham, they got smacked down. When they didn't obey the Lord, wham. When the Lord was with them, the Lord would say, why don't you pare down your army? Why don't you take out the vast majority of your army and just go up with a few of the wimps against them, all deliver them into your hands. It was a spiritual battle. The battle belonged to the Lord. The Lord won the battle. So there was a tremendous amount of demonic activity in the Old Testament, an overwhelming amount, entire nations turning and worshiping Satan and demons. Now, what is interesting is that there are no clear instances in the Old Testament of a demon being cast out. We see it all the time in the New Testament. The only thing that even comes close in the Old Testament is 1 Samuel chapter 16, where an evil spirit would come upon Saul, and David would have to come in and begin to play his lyre, and while he played the lyre, it said that the demon would leave Saul for a time. But then the demon would come back when he stopped playing, when he was gone. So there was not ever in the Old Testament through the agency of men, God working through men, a total and utter destruction of the enemy. There wasn't a total triumph and victory over evil spirits in the way that we see in the New Testament. Though we know that the Jewish people tried to have dominion over the demons. Don't you remember in Acts chapter 19? We're told there that there were Jewish exorcists. And they heard that Paul was having tremendous success casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they tried to use the name of Jesus and they came against these demons and these demons said to the Jewish exorcist, Jesus, we recognize. We've heard of Paul, but who are you? Wham, stripped him naked, beat him senseless and sent him running. Acts chapter 19. There was no victory for them apart from the name of Jesus. Jesus uh, mentioned Jewish exorcists also in Matthew chapter 12. But in the Old Testament period, there was not the victory and the triumph over evil spirits until the ministry of Jesus. And when Jesus came, there was absolute authority over the enemy displayed and made manifest. When the people saw it, They were struck out of their senses, astonished, overwhelmed because they hadn't seen it prior to that. They had seen demonic activity, but they hadn't seen the victory until Jesus came. That's why this day in the synagogue, the people were just going, what? They hadn't seen that sort of authority. Jesus said that if he cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, he said to the religious leaders. So a distinguishing mark of the kingdom of God is authority over the demonic realm. And a distinguishing mark of the Messiah coming was his authority over Satan in the demonic realm. So there was that absolute victory during the time of Jesus. The third stage of demonic activity, the new covenant age. You know from reading your Bible that in Mark chapter 3 and in other places, Jesus gave authority to the 12 disciples to cast out demons. Sometimes they were successful. Other times they weren't. We'll talk about that next week and how that pertains to us. But beyond just giving authority to the 12 disciples, he, gave, he then gave authority to the 70 disciples. And they went out on their little mission trip there in Luke chapter 10, and they came back rejoicing, astounded, astonished, struck 
out of their senses, overwhelmed by the fact that they were able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, man, don't, that's no big deal. I'm the king of kings. I have total sovereignty over them. Be excited that your name is written in the book of life. Be excited that you're not going to where the demons are going, that you're going to heaven. That's something to be excited about. But he gave authority to the 12. He gave authority to the 70. And those in the early church, Paul and the others had authority over demons. We see them in the book of Acts casting out demons. And as well, you and I have been given authority by and in the name of Jesus Christ over the demonic spiritual realm. And it exists today, both the demonic realm and our authority over it. If we did not have this authority given to us by the king, then what sort of cheesy kingdom would it be? I mean, we are the king's kids. We are the king's subjects. We are his ambassadors. You always, always, always in politics, you always send an ambassador with authority. Don't send an ambassador to a foreign land who has no authority. We are called ambassadors of Christ. By the very nature of the word, we have authority. We have been commissioned by the very nature of the word. We have authority in the demonic realm. The new covenant age, the church age, the age of grace, the age that we live in until the rapture of the church is to be characterized by triumph over the powers of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says, the son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so, every believer, and we'll talk more about this next week, every believer is told that we are engaged in a battle. Every believer is told that we have weapons that are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they are divinely powerful to destroy the work of the enemy. Every believer is told in the book of James and in the book of 1 Peter, James 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5, 8, that we can resist the devil and when we do, he will flee from us. Now, why would the word of God tell you to resist the devil if there wasn't gonna be victory in that resisting? 1 James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 is terrifying. It says, be sober, be on alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then thankfully it says in the next verse, but stand firm in your faith. Paul said, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but we do wage war against the enemy. We'll talk more about that next week, but the new covenant age is characterized by triumph over Satan. But the triumph is not yet complete. In the millennial kingdom, it gets even sweeter. Turn now to Revelation chapter 20. We're going way out there to Revelation 20. Out there meaning in the future. During the millennial kingdom, our fourth period, there is a much greater restriction on Satan than we see today. Now, hold on a minute before you read Revelation 20. I realize that we understand, okay, well, we have this authority. And Satan was defeated upon the cross, but he's still doing all kinds of stuff. God's plan is not completed yet. Remember we talked about two weeks ago that the kingdom of God was inaugurated. It came when Jesus came, but there is a completion. There is a further fulfillment. It's not done yet. You just live in a moment. Your life is but a vapor. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. But God sees the whole plan. So the plan is unfolding, you know. If Carpinteria warriors, no, well, uh, uh, let's use Rocky Balboa. 
Rocky, no, let's use Muhammad Ali. Let's make it real. Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, what was his famous move? The rope-a-dope. Muhammad Ali, he did the rope-a-dope. Listen to me. Here's what he would do. What would he do? He let himself get against the ropes, and he'd just be getting jacked up. Uh, They're just jacking him up. Uh, uh, And he looks like he's going down. And the trainer, no doubt, is going, Muhammad, what are you doing, man? You got to fight. What are you doing, fool? You're going to lose. And all the while, Muhammad Ali saying in his mind, I got a plan. I got a plan, man. I'm going to take this chump. I got a plan. I'm the, I move like a butterfly. I sting like a bee. And so he's like this, and he's getting beat up, and he's taking a beating. But all the while, the opponent is getting tired and tired and tired and tired. And then at the appointed time, Muhammad comes, and he takes him out. Now, see, if you were watching that fight, and you saw him on the ropes, you'd be like, Muhammad, you are dumb. But then at the end, you'd be singing a different song, right? So maybe you're singing, what's the deal? Why is there all this demonic activity and why is the enemy doing thus and so? You better read the end of the book, Revelation chapter 20. God has a plan. This now, speaking of the millennial kingdom, verse one, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, A literal interpretation of millennial millennial kingdom says it is yet to come. If you believe that we are in the millennial kingdom, you have theological problems because Satan clearly is not bound in the way that it speaks of him being bound here. But in the millennial kingdom, he will be thrown into the abyss. He will be bound. He will not be allowed to have any activity, any power, any sway over men whatsoever for a thousand years. Isn't the millennial kingdom going to be wonderful? It's going to be glorious. But then it says that freaky thing, but after the thousand years, he's going to be loosed. Now, why would God loose him at the end of the thousand years after this glorious millennial kingdom? Because God will prove once again that the hearts of men are desperately wicked and full of deceit. Even with Jesus physically ruling and reigning for a thousand years from Jerusalem, men during that time will begin to turn their hearts away from God. And it says in the following verses that when Satan is released, he once again deceives the nations to come against God. And guess who wins? And God will judge Satan and God will judge man for one final time, having shown once again that Satan is sinful, duh, but that man is also sinful. And even with the absence of Satan, Man's heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit and in need of redemption and a final judgment. And so now, the last stage of demonic activity at the final judgment, verse 10, not much demonic activity here. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. It says in verse 11, to give us a context, and I saw a great white throne. This is a great white throne judgment known as the final judgment. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged from the things written in the book. Here is the great judgment. According to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he also was thrown into the lake of fire. Take very careful note. The lake of fire, what we might properly call and finally recognize as hell, was not created for man. It was created for Satan and the demons. And it is their eternal destruction. Satan is not the king of hell. The Bible does not teach that. It doesn't even teach that he is in hell at this moment. God is the king of kings, the king of all things. Satan is called the God of this world, lowercase g, because man is handed over to him sovereignty and control of our lives and our nations. But God is in absolute control, and the enemy will be tormented day and night. And so will those whose name was not found written in the book of life. Please, in the name of Jesus, make sure that your name and every human being that you know, their name is written in the book of life. There's only one way to get in the Lamb's book of life to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, who the Bible declares is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, man of great integrity, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Revelation chapter 5 says, I saw, as it were, a lamb having been slain, and it was Jesus Christ. He is the only sacrifice, the only way to forgiveness, the only way to get in the Lamb's book of life is to go through the Lamb. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Please, Receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and have your name in that book that you will escape the judgment and dwell in heaven with him forever. So it becomes very clear through our study here of the differing periods of demonic activity that demons have always been and will always be under God's control and limited in their power. We close with this. In the book of Job, they had to come. Satan had to come and ask God permission for anything that he could do. In Jude, verse 6, we are told that the demonic forces are kept under eternal bonds, meaning that they are bound in what they can do by God. And in James chapter 4, verse 7, again, we are told that as Christians, we can successfully resist the devil and he must flee. He does not have free reign. There is not a cosmic battle between two equal entities, good and evil. God is the victory. The Bible declares that he won the victory upon the cross and the victory has been won for you and I. And the Bible declares that the enemy's future is sure. We've got to know that God is in control. We must have an eternal perspective on demonic activity. Realize that it was a main goal of the incarnation to render Satan powerless. It says in Hebrews 2.14, Since then the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And Colossians 2 tells us on the cross that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and triumphed over them. The only thing that remains in question is not, is Jesus in control? That's not a question. Is Jesus on the throne? That is not a question. Does he have all authority in the demonic realm? That is not a question. But next week's question remains. 
How does victory over Satan become actual and operative in our personal lives and in our daily service to God? How does the victory over Satan become actual and operative in our daily lives? It is not enough to know that through the cross, Christ rendered Satan powerless. We've got to be able to exercise the power and the authority. The potential must be translated into the actual. And so next week, we'll address questions such as, how do we use the authority given to us in the demonic realm over the demonic realm by Jesus Christ? What do we say? How do we approach that? We'll answer this question. Can demons know the future? Can they know the thoughts of men? Can they read the minds of men? Can Christians be possessed? How does the victory of Jesus become operative for us? How do we actually and daily resist the devil? That we'll talk about next week. Lord, we thank you today for your clear word that you have absolute and total authority. And I just pray that for your congregation here, for your people, that that would bring tremendous comfort knowing that the victory is won on our behalf and that the demons are absolutely terrified of you. Give us that eternal perspective. Bring comfort to our hearts. And this week, Lord, instruct us by your spirit working through your word on your authority given to us. We want our life in the kingdom to be all that it should be, all that it could be. I know we're on serious ground here biblically. And so, God, by your spirit, you instruct us. You guide us into all truth, into all wisdom, into all knowledge for your glory. And now we will simply, by faith, proclaim your victory. We will now sing, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. We will stand and proclaim in the midst of the congregation. We will stand and proclaim in the midst of the community. We will stand and proclaim on this coastline and in this world to the natural and to the spiritual realm that the Lord reigns that righteousness and truth are the foundations of his throne. Lord, you reign. You are the only king. You are the king of kings. You are the high and exalted one. And we proclaim it now. And we realize that the natural realm will react. And there will be men who receive you and follow you and men who reject you. We realize also that the demonic realm will react and demons will flee and demons will fight. But we know that you desire that none shall perish regarding men and that the enemy is a defeated foe regarding demons. And so we boldly proclaim you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.